The Energy Gang is brought to you by C-Power Energy Management. C-Power provides custom demand-side energy management solutions that help keep you green and earn revenue in the process. C-Power is a leading national provider of demand response curtailment programs. And if you think about it, the greenest energy is probably the energy you don't use. C-Power also offers integrated solutions like storage plus demand response and other tools to help you achieve your green energy goals and monetize your energy assets. C-Power is here to help you, to help you save on energy costs, earn revenue through energy curtailment, enhance your sustainability efforts, and contribute to a balanced, reliable grid. Find out more about C-Power's demand-side energy management solutions at cpowerenergymanagement.com. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome. It's been a week of rejection in the nation's capital. Trump-appointed regulators this week rejected Rick Perry's plan to save coal plants. Steve Bannon, the man pushing for an economic war with China, has been soundly rejected by the president in Breitbart News. And Paul Ryan, the Speaker of the House, appears ready to reject a White House push for an infrastructure bill. We'll see. How will this guide the twists and turns in energy politics in 2018? That's our show this week. Nearly one year after Trump was sworn into office, we're re-examining the state of play in Washington. Our post-Trump election episode that uh, we recorded over a year ago when he was elected, that was one of our most listened to shows of last year. So we're returning to the subject now, and now we've got experience and not just speculation. Catherine Hamilton is my regular co-host. She's a partner with 38 North Solutions right there in the swamp of Washington, D.C. Hello, Catherine. Yes, how are you? And the swamp is starting to melt a little from the severe chill. Same here as well. Jigger Shaw is off this week mucking around in the swamp somewhere. Joining us is our guest, Amy Harder, one of the top U.S. national reporters in energy Amy previously wrote for National Journal and the Wall Street Journal, and now she's an energy reporter at Axios. She also joins us from Washington. Hello, Amy. Hello. It's great to be here. Great to have you on. We've been wanting to get you on the show for a while. When you're you know, covering the national stage, it's always kind of a whirlwind. Um, you've been doing it for a while. You've seen some of the biggest energy stories come and go. But we're obviously smack in this unique period of history. What's it been like for you over the last year covering this beat in D.C.? Well, it certainly has been a whirlwind. I mean, no matter what a Republican candidate was going to to be the presidential nominee in the election, it would have been a huge change from President Obama. So... President Trump is unique in so many ways, but in fact, on energy and climate issues, he has pretty similar positions as the rest of the Republican Party. And so in that respect, this has been a year less about the the idiosyncrasies of Trump and more just about a Republican agenda on energy and climate change. And so I think Trump and his cabinet has made it a little bit messier and a little bit more hectic. Um, we saw the news this week um, that the Interior Secretary tweeted out that he was going to remove Florida from uh, the offshore drilling plan. That is something that has not been done in the past. And it's certainly messier than we are. Ex- we have experienced under, um, you know, the Obama administration or any other Republican in Washington. So certainly we are needing to be on our toes with this administration. Catherine, what do you think about that? Do, do you think that Trump's priorities, when you kind of push aside the chaos, are actually pretty consistent with other Republicans? So yes, I agree with Amy on you know, what's coming out of the agencies, because the people who are running the agencies are Republicans with the ideology um, of what the Republican Party has now for energy, um, especially when I work on clean energy. The difference is the the that the president is more capricious. And so some of those policies, it's how they're rolled out and how we find out about them and how they manifest themselves that's different. Well, let's talk about the latest manifestation Uh, which was Rick Perry's proposed rule to backstop retiring coal and nuke plants that came out of this um, long-anticipated report on grid reliability from the Department of Energy. It's a great place to start um, at the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, where regulators this week actually put a kibosh on that uh, attempt to backstop coal and nuke plants in the name 
of grid resiliency. It's a unique um, method to issue a proposed rule like this out of the Department of Energy. It's it's rarely done. So indicative of how the Trump administration is going about things. You know, we've covered this a lot, so we don't have to go into too much background here, but it's helpful to remind folks what happened. Uh, in a letter months ago, Perry warned about the impact of renewable energy and retiring baseload plants and asked Trump-appointed regulators, or I guess just, you know, theoretical regulators at that time, but now Trump-appointed regulators who are are seated at FERC, to create some kind of tariff system that would compensate power plants with 90 days of fuel on site. Um, the saga has finally ended, though. The deadline for action was this week, and there were hints that FERC would take up the proposal, but instead on Monday, they rejected it. Catherine, first to you on this, what happened? Yeah, so there are a couple of key thresholds that this DOE NOPER did not meet. And this is why I like FERC so much is that it is based on legal constructs and it's based on building a record. So first you have to show that existing rates, the existing structure and market is unjust, unreasonable, unduly discriminatory and preferential. And then you have to prove that your remedy that you propose, which DOE proposed, is just reasonable, not unduly discriminatory or preferential. And basically what they said in this unanimous rule is neither of those were satisfied. So they did not even satisfy the fundamental legal requirements of moving forward on a proposal. So it was really an outright, this does not, we're going to just put this rule aside, we're going to open up a new um, hearing, and we're not going to deal with that. I mean, they really said that the DOE's grid report, first of all, didn't even say that there was a problem. So nothing that DOE had in its evidence proved that there was a resilience problem in the first place. So now what FERC is going to do is they've opened up a new docket, and they've asked the RTOs, they've given the RTOs and ISOs 60 days to answer a set of questions. One is to develop an understanding of what is resilience. What, like, first we need to figure out how do we define it? And here's our understanding at FERC, but you bring us your ideas of what does that mean to the bulk power system? The second is, how are you dealing with that? What are your resilience plans? What does that look like? And then FERC is going to evaluate whether they even need to do anything. So you have to identify what the problem is. And then you have to figure out if there actually is a problem and if the solutions will work. After those 60 days when the RTOs and ISOs file, then interested parties can then comment. And you know there will be a lot. over. The, they'll have 30 days to respond to that. And FERC can decide to move forward or they could decide that this is just a not an issue and move forward on something else. Amy, what are your thoughts on this? How significant is it that a couple of Trump-appointed nominees argued against Perry's proposal, basically saying it didn't pass the legal sniff test, one of them being Neil Chatterjee, a commissioner who was formerly the energy policy advisor for Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, and there were sort of questions about where he would come down on this. Your thoughts? Right. Well, I think it's certainly significant. I sort of described it as this move was the triumph of the expected over the uh in a world where we have grown to expect the unexpected. Um, so if you can follow my logic there, most people, uh, most independent analysts say that there is, there's been no data to show that there's a problem. In fact, Commissioner Chatterjee at an event that we hosted at Axios, he said that. He said, well, we don't have the data, we're looking for it, which uh, isn't the same as having an, a problem that's backed up with data. So I think it's significant going really big picture. I mean, in this political age, in this, in this town of Washington, so often um, what the administration does is not necessarily backed up by facts. And in this case, it was. What the independent, I should emphasize, of course, that FERC is an independent agency, what they did was expected and normal and rational in a political world where none of those things are happening. So, you know, I think it's significant for the fact that it's actually not that significant, um, given it's what we would have expected before the Trump era. So I think it is extremely important for us to be considering what resiliency and reliability means along a changing grid, particularly in regional grids where you have massive amounts of variable renewable energy coming online. So this is certainly long term, something that 
commissioners need to be considering, but they should be considering it with the facts at hand. And this decision was a win for uh, evidence-based decision-making. You know, they looked at it. They looked at what RTOs are saying. They looked at what experts were saying. They looked at DOE and EIA data and said, the facts just don't back this up. So let's think, take a more holistic look. And um, I think we can all feel pretty good about that because we need to be asking these questions long term, but we need to be doing them with real facts at hand. You know, interestingly, Corey Lewandowski, Trump's first campaign manager, took to Twitter to call the decision part of the deep state, you know, thrusting this normally obscure agency into the political spotlight for a hot minute. Commissioner Chatterjee responded saying that if both sides are attacking him, he might be doing something right. Uh, Amy, you were tweeting about this as well. Any thoughts on on this uh, reaction from Lewandowski? Right. Well, I... I spoke with Commissioner Chatterjee about this yesterday. And, and you know, he, of course, knew about the tweet. Um, I think, number one, you know, most people don't know what FERC is, let alone what it does. And, let, you know, Corey Ledowski is somebody who probably falls into that category of not knowing what it does. He clearly didn't realize that four out of the five commissioners on FERC have been appointed by, tr- um, by Trump in the last year. Three out of those four are Republicans, including Chatterjee. So Chatterjee certainly was pushing the administration's position on this more um, over the last couple of months. But in the end, it was unanimous decision. And I think it it shows, again, that um, at least for an independent agency like FERC, there is, there is a limit to what political motives can have an influence on. I mean, let's remember that this is, you know, this seems really um, hectic and, and messy because it's something that President Trump is doing, but who knows if another Republican president would have done that too. I mean, this is the first Republican administration to come in after President Obama's incredibly aggressive um, agenda himself. So I think you're seeing what is somewhat of a natural response by Republicans, natural political response, I should emphasize, trying to support the industries that have historically supported them, which is coal and nuclear power. Well, what I thought was interesting. I certainly, um, Commissioner Chatterjee's comments were well received by a lot of people who believe that, you know, markets are really important. But, uh, Commissioner LaFleur said that she believes the commission could continue to focus its efforts not on slowing the transition from the past, but on easing the transition to the future. So she could see that, you know, grid operators to sustain reliability and resilience are going to be working with a system that's going to be cleaner, more dynamic more distributed and deployed by an efficient market for the benefit of customers. And then Commissioner Glick also made comments that it's important to consider the advantages of newer technologies like distributed energy, energy storage, microgrids, and their ability to offer and address resilience challenges to the bulk power system. I think all of the folks who are there now are seeing that we're in a phase where the there's an evolution of technology and you know, part of what FERC does is within their jurisdiction under the Federal Power Act, they also need to make sure that there is a competitive market that all can participate in. And by all, that includes innovation. So I think this gives us some clues as to what could be coming down the line for the distributed energy resource and energy storage notice of proposed rulemaking that they're also considering right now. Um, as they think about what is innovation, how is innovation going to participate on the grid? And I think this gives us some clues. The Energy Gang is brought to you by C-Power Energy Management. Here's an energy question for you. What happens when you combine DR with DER? Well, you get a way to save on energy costs, keep the grid healthy, and earn revenue at the same time. C-Power has partnered with STEM, the national storage experts, to bring you a leading-edge program that integrates demand response with AI-powered energy storage. It lets you curtail your grid energy use with usually little to no disruption day-to-day, not to mention the savings and earnings that can be realized. You're happy, the grid's happy, and your customers are happy. Storage plus DR is just one of the demand-side energy management solutions that C-Power provides to customers operating in all of the nation's open energy markets. Find out how you can save, earn, and reach your green energy goals at cpowerenergymanagement.com. That's cpowerenergymanagement.com. Okay, moving on. We're going to break this conversation into two parts, uh, White House-related matters, and congressional matters. You know, one of the things that the Trump administration is doing well uh, within the White House uh, is deregulation. 
And we had a good conversation with ProPublica's Talia Buford last week about that exact topic. So let's look forward to the deregulation agenda within the Trump administration. Amy, how might that agenda play out across agencies in the coming months? What's on the docket? Well, I am focusing the most on the EPA and Interior Department. Of course, President Obama's uh, clean power plan is the top of the list at the EPA. The the EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt um, has said... um, this week, I think in an interview with Reuters that he wants to get the, the regulation repealed. Excuse me. He wants to get it replaced, uh, and finalized within this year, giving him and the administration plenty of time to defend it in court. So that's a pretty quick timeline. It's not that unexpected given, uh, Trump's focus on deregulation, but the clean power plan isn't the only one I'm watching. Um, methane regulations, to what extent the EPA wants, um, to issue a replacement rule for, uh, standards on emissions of methane, which is a potent greenhouse gas from oil and gas wells not yet drilled. Uh, the, the oil and gas industry is actually not all on the same page about that issue. I know some of the bigger, more global companies actually want some sort of standard while the more domestic ones, um, don't. And then on the at, at the Interior Department, there's a suite of regulations. I would put the offshore leasing plan in that category, even though it's not technically a regulation. It certainly requires a regulatory process. We've seen a lot of news on that front this week, but other things as well. Uh, regulations um, or moves to chip away at regulations that were put in place after the Deepwater Horizon oil spill and a few others. So it's going to be really active. Uh, 2017 was sort of the year of articulating what uh, regulations they wanted to target. And this is going to be the year when, you know, the the work really uh, gets to the forefront about the debates with different industries and exactly what they want to do. So it's not very sexy in terms of headline grabbing, but it's going to be very important to the industries affected and environmental groups. Amy, on Department of Interior, at the end of last year, we saw some announcements um, about how um, Secretary Zinke was closing in on some of those Antiquities Act national monuments and lowering the number of acres in the national monuments, and then also talking about opening up uh, public lands, including national parks and monuments to um, drilling and exploration. How do you see that spinning out this year? Yeah, well, I think, you know, that's obviously been a very hot issue out in the West for a lot of those states in Utah and other way and other places. I think it, it's, you know, it seems to be a little bit less clear if there's going to be actual drilling in some of these uh, places that were previously designated as monuments and national parks. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, bluster and a lot of comments that you hear from different interest groups and, and the interior secretary. But what actually happens, I think, is is going to be less um, drastic in either direction. So I think... Um, I don't think energy companies are going to be racing to drill in these areas that were previously designated as national monuments. I think sometimes that can be lost in the political conversation. What is next, Catherine, for the clean power replacement? This is actually quite interesting because if you're not in D.C. following the moment-by-moment politics, you might simply get away with saying, well, he's scrapping the clean power plan entirely, uh, Scott Pruitt. But what what's actually happening is there's this ex- expanded comment period for replacement of the clean power plan, which means they are not going to legally challenge the underpinning of, uh, you know, greenhouse gas regulations. So they're just going to find a different way to do it, probably water it down. Like, uh, what's what happens next? And what's the significance of this? Yeah, so there are two ways that um, people can comment in this. One is on the issue of stopping the clean power plant implementation. So I'm actually filing comments on that this afternoon. And then by the end of February, people have to respond to this advance notice for this new, this power plant replacement. And it's really looking at inside the fence issues and trying to limit the scope I think there will be a lot of comments filed on that, and I would encourage anybody who can to show up and submit those because you want to, just as with FERC, you want to build a record and show real reason why you would want to do more than just inside the fence. And a lot of people think inside the fence is certainly important, but there are a lot of solutions that can be brought into the system because really the energy system and the electric system it, it is a system and it and there are resources that can be brought to bear 
from the distribution and the con- consumer load side, as well as from the generation side. And, you know, while they want to regulate only inside the fence, I think you can think about, and this was part of what the Obama administration did, was like, well, where are the solutions coming from then? Because you can't just look at retiring or shutting down plants um, in a vacuum. You have to think about then, then what do you do after that? So I think that's where a lot of the folks in the clean energy sector can kind of bring their ideas to the table. I think it's going to be really important to do that. And maybe they will bury those, but those are important for public comment. Much could be said about this administration's ability to implement policy, chaotic, unprepared, maybe amateurish, but the deregulation agenda seems to be the area where they're most prepared and, you know, they have experienced people working on chipping away at regulations, many of which were put in place under the Obama administration or at least started. Amy, what are your thoughts on the Trump administration's ability to execute the deregulatory agenda related to maybe other areas of policy where they've had a harder time? Right. I would say one area where they have fumbled is on the methane front. Now, methane is, of course, as I mentioned, a potent greenhouse gas, and it was one of the last pillars of Obama's environmental agenda that he pursued in a waning you know, six to nine months of his administration. And so there's actually two different regulations on this front um, that Obama issued, one at the Interior Department and then one at EPA. And in fact, he started, Obama had started another regulation on methane for existing sources at EPA. So there's really three of those um, between the two agencies. And the Interior Department um, has tried, well, in fact, it started at the Senate. Um, The Senate tried and failed to um, pass a measure that would have vetoed that methane rule at the Interior Department. There's been a couple of legal setbacks uh, with the Interior Department trying but failing to uh, basically hit pause on that regulation. And so you're seeing some fumblings on that end. And then at the EPA, um, the agency, again, is torn about what to do. I think, you know, left to their own devices, they probably would just get rid of any and all regulations on methane. But there's some in the industry that want it. So I think that's a debate that's um, much more complicated and controversial within the industry than the Clean Power Plan, for example. Even though the Clean Power Plan is more politically high profile and controversial, methane is really where some of these debates Debates um, are happening within the agency. I've talked with EPA officials about this, and they they realize that a lot of companies have made investments into technologies that capture the methane. Um, of course, methane is the the primary ingredient of natural gas. So I think that's one area that is a little bit on the wonky side. So I think the the listeners here will appreciate that, and it's something that I'm watching. Let's go on to the solar tariffs front. Uh, we've seen reporting. Over the months in Axios and in other publications like Politico that the Trump administration, uh, Trump himself really wants to see retaliatory measures against China, and that could include solar tariffs. Of course, we've had this deliberation at the International Trade Commission over recent months, and um, now the president gets to make a decision here in the coming weeks. So I'm just curious, Amy... You know, Politico reported this story, you know, this week, today, actually, showing that the Trump administration is internally gearing up for a broad range of retaliatory measures against China. Axios has had a number of great scoops looking at Trump's relationship and desire for tariffs that have gotten a lot of play. What's your understanding of where things stand now as we head into the final weeks of the solar stuff? Right. Well, you know, we reported maybe as long as six months ago um, that an administration official said that it's very likely that um, Trump would issue tariffs on solar. So I think, you know, that has been a presumption and an expectation among people here in Washington that that's happening. I think um, it's certainly not in terms of the broader picture, tariffs on solar, it's just not enough to satisfy the president's appetite for a a, a trade, um, you know, battle with China. So I think it's going to be part of a bigger picture. I think uh, the other two issues that I'm watching are the investigations on whether or not there should be tariffs on imports of steel um, is the other big one that I'm watching, in part because the the energy industry, the oil and gas in particular, is dependent upon steel for pipelines. So I think 
these issues are all coming to a head at the same time. I think it's, it's, it just seems like an obvious yes that President Trump is going to issue tariffs on solar. And I, I, I'm definitely looking at the, the solar case and I've written on it extensively, but I think it's important to realize that that's, it's, it's, uh, sufficient, but not, um, the only option for the administration at this time. So you're not closely following the Whirlpool washing machine case? <laughs> right. No, um, I'm not. But really, if, if I wanted to be accurate, I really should also watch that because this is all part of the same thing. I would note, though, that, you know, issuing tariffs on solar is this is really the third time that this has happened in this um over since I think 2013, you know, under the Obama administration, tariffs of a more narrower variety were placed on imports of solar. So actually, you know, this is really par for the course um, in terms of the solar industry. I think the stakes are higher because it's a broader remedy and because it's happening under President Trump. But I think it will be so much better once the decision is made so that the industry can move forward. This just lack of certainty on what's going to happen has been been pretty tough. Oh, totally. I mean, it's helpful to remind listeners that we've seen a direct economic impact in module pricing and overall system pricing. In um, you know, throughout 2017, we saw a bump up in pricing for the first time in many many years. A lot of developers are you know buying up as many modules as they can, anticipating that there will be tariffs coming. And um, that has a direct influence on the economics of projects. Now, long term, when these tariffs are implemented, I should say if, but it's very likely that they will. So when these tariffs are implemented, you could see many gigawatts of utility scale projects in particular across the United States, see their economics, they're already thin margins crushed and compressed. And and that could take a lot of projects off the table. I think, you know, and this is something that I've actually spoken with Jigger about. So I'll, I'll plug him, give him a plug um, in his absence. But, you know, these, these, any sort of tariffs on solar panels, of course, are temporary. And so I think anything that's happening here is not going to magically create a clean energy manufacturing um, foundation. And so I think that's one of the tough parts about this. I mean, long ago, we ceded lots of um, manufacturing to China. And so this one change may help on the margins temporarily, but I think that the changes that would be required to really create a solar manufacturing industry in the U.S. are going to be monumental. And it's, I mean, the, the, the policy and politics that that would require are just outside the reach of this Washington. So Steve Bannon's gone. He's basically severed his relationship with the White House after he was quoted in Michael Wolff's book, uh, you know, basically questioning the president's fitness for office. And then that he's seen this downfall in the last few days where he severed his ties with uh, Breitbart News and the White House. And he was really the guy pushing the anti-China trade agenda. And I'm wondering if with, with Bannon gone, does that change the dynamics here? You have you know, Peter Navarro, who's probably the closest to Bannon and pushing for retaliatory measures. But, you know, Gary Cohn and and others are trying to temper the president. And Gary Cohn actually said that he's going to stay in the White House to make sure that the decision making is tempered and that, you know, rash decisions are not made. Anyone have thoughts on how the internal staffing changes or particularly just the, the downfall of Bannon changes any of this China stuff? I wish Gary Cohn luck. (laughs) <laughs> like, I, I don't know how that's going to go for him. Man, he's stayed on through a lot. I think the the place where it could have an impact uh, would be something like the investigations into uh, the steel and aluminum imports. I think the solar case, for a couple of reasons, I think it's just a cut and dry case. I mean, it's, it's somewhat the, I mean, the solar industry is somewhat insular, right? So tariffs on solar panels are not going to affect wind turbines um, directly anyway, whereas uh, tariffs on steel has ripple effects throughout the economy. And also the steel industry is somewhat of an ally of the administration. The solar case 
unfortunately for the solar industry, is not necessarily, or I could just say, it's not a priority of this administration. So from a political perspective, it's pretty easy to issue tariffs on solar imports. I think where Bannon's exit would have an impact is on these on these bigger investigations that could have a broader impact on the economy and actually take a bigger hit for some of the administration's political allies. Let's get off Pennsylvania Avenue and head over to Constitution Avenue, where lawmakers have a lot of choices over what to bicker about and stall on next. Naturally, there's the obligatory early year question that we all have about whether some kind of carbon price can pass Congress. And there's also a question of whether an infrastructure bill that could include lots of energy projects, in fact, a bunch were proposed, transmission projects and storage projects, whether that will see the light of day. Amy, after the um, tax bill passed, you wrote a story for Axios about the posturing around a carbon tax or maybe some other way to price carbon. I don't think... Many people believe it's likely, but there's always this undercurrent of activity going on. What's the latest? Right. Well, in my, I did one of my latest columns. I have a weekly column called Her Line, which I, I hope everybody can read. Um, and in one of my columns at the beginning of this year, I talked about sort of the, the big trends that I'm watching this year. And one of them was basically saying that I, you know, there could be some tectonic plates shifting on a carbon tax this year, which some people interpreted as me thinking a carbon tax will pass Congress this year, which is, which is laughable. Uh, but what I meant by that is that you're seeing, at least I'm seeing in some of my conversations with um, sources on and off the Hill, many of those conversations private, so I can't share them here. But I'm seeing that there's efforts um, being made to really start talking about this. I think, you know, the the Center for Glo- Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University is going to do a big project on this. Um, the, the Brookings Institution is launching a bunch of carbon tax papers uh, next month, I think. So while this this effort outside of Capitol Hill may easily be dismissed, it's actually, that's how policy gets done. You saw that happen with the oil export ban that was lifted a few years ago. You saw this uh, series of reports issued, and then eventually it happened in Congress. And so I think a carbon tax is a much heavier lift, but the potential passes of it, passage of a carbon tax in five to seven years, I think that's it's not it's slightly more likely than than zero, I would say, maybe five to 10%. <laughs> Catherine, your reaction? Uh, yeah, I think that for a carbon tax to happen, if the Republicans are still in charge, there would have to be a complete sea change in how they think about climate change. They would have to first say that there is a problem. They would have to agree that there is a problem and that this is a solution to that problem. And we're not there or we've We've certainly backslid. They used to be there. They're not there now, at least publicly. So I think, first of all, the politics would have to change. The ideology would need to change. Um, But that said, it's really good that all of these think tanks are working on it because these policies are going to be taking place in some states and they are taking place globally. So that's exactly how you get things done is if you can test drive these in states and regions and globally, then eventually when the time is right, it'll be teed up and ready for the federal sector to to take some ownership. Let me propose something here, and then you can both roll your eyes afterward. So the Republicans were able to slip in this um, ending of the individual mandate into their tax bill. So Democrats want to see an infrastructure bill that would go well above the $200 billion in federal commitments. And I'm wondering, like, if if um, they were to agree to that lower number and this public-private partnership route that Republicans want to see, could they slip in some kind of low carbon pricing to that broader infrastructure bill? Is there is there any realm in which that is a possibility? I don't think it'll be germane to the bill. I don't think it'll be a tax bill. Well, the individual mandate wasn't germane to the bill. <laughs> I think it's a little bit too early in this carbon tax debate. I think the issue isn't ripe enough. Uh, to Catherine's point, I also still think that Republicans need to do a little bit more soul searching on the, on the issue of climate change. Now, you know, a decade ago, Republicans acknowledged that climate change was a problem. And then, you know, they, they denied that for several years. And now I see many of them coming back, but it's certainly not uh, enough, um, to actually do something on a carbon tax this year. Now, whether or not some Democrats may call for a carbon tax, um, 
I could see that happening. I also see the potential for discussion of raising the gasoline tax to come up as well. There's numerous states that have done that, including Republican ones. So I think you may see some uh, discussion about that. However, um, people say, people tell me that, well, in the context of a gasoline tax, Democrats would then call for a carbon tax and then the conversation would die and we would go back to deficit spending or whatever Congress does when they can't agree on a way to raise money. Well, then let's just talk about this infrastructure bill outright. Senate Republicans are more willing to entertain the bill. Uh, Paul Ryan didn't put it on his priority list for this year, as as uh, I understand it. He's really more interested in entitlement reform. Trump does want this bill. The White House has indicated that it is a priority for 2018, although they haven't really set out a good pathway on how to get there. But again, the Senate is a little bit more willing to work with the the White House on this bill. Catherine, what's the likelihood that we'll get an infrastructure bill uh, in 2018? Well, I don't know what we'll, we'll end up getting, but the president had said this is his top priority. And what I think you will see is that both those House members, who all of whom are, are up in 2018, and a third of the Senate is, um, a lot of those folks aren't going to want to go against the president's top priority. So they can come along for infrastructure. I mean, they, I don't think if this is the one thing that he wants to do, they're gonna wa- not going to want to go against him when they really have to get his base to get reelected. So I think on a political calculus, they're going to want to do it. Now, I'm not sure how it's really going to spin out. You know, it's $200 billion potentially from the federal sector with some private sector matching grants. You could see something like what the stimulus was when Obama first came into office, where there were matching grant programs um, for things like smart grid and other technologies. So we could see something like that. I think it's it's possible. And so I'm working on it. I'm trying to make sure that grid modernization, that clean technology and innovation is all considered part of infrastructure and would be potentially be a better investment than funding off-ramps and on-ramps. Amy, who are all the players posturing for a potential infrastructure bill in energy? Well, the funny thing about infrastructure is that it can be absolutely anything that you want it to be, pretty much. So from a political perspective, I agree with Catherine that I think uh, it's an easy thing to support from a political perspective because it's so broad. Now, I think the energy industry, it's, it's a little bit trickier because infrastructure is so much broader than energy. And I think uh, people think of things like highways and bridges. So most people don't really think about energy when they think about infrastructure, um, mainly because people don't really think about energy, right? I mean, people who listen to this podcast do, but most of the time, average people out there are, are not paying attention to it, even when they're at the gas station filling up their tanks. So I think the industries, um, you know, Jack Gerard, the head of the American Petroleum Institute, said this week, how, you know, how important that oil and gas pipelines, um, that's a type of infrastructure, how important that should be to this debate. So I think you're going to see energy types of all kinds coming to the table, trying to make their case. But the problem with something so broad is that things fall to the wayside. And so I, I would anticipate although I think we're a little bit early in the discussion to really know at this point that the energy world won't factor in too broadly into this infrastructure debate. Let's move over to a major win for Republicans last year in this tax bill, and that was opening up ANWR, the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, parts of it to drilling. What comes next now? This has been a decades-long fight, and all of a sudden we have a freed-up land in ANWR for oil drilling. What can we expect on this front? Lawsuits? (laughs) Yeah, right. I think another big thing, and this is something I've been talking a lot with um, executives at uh, different oil companies, that we really don't know what's up there. Uh, you know, there's only been one well that's been drilled there, and that was in the 80s. And the results of that well um, from the executives that I've talked to are really confidential. So I think in addition to lawsuits, uh, the other thing that will be done is is seismic testing to see what type of resources are up there. And, you know, I think it's important to note the backdrop, which is relatively low oil prices. 
you know, if this had happened in 2008, the, the debate would be very different when oil prices were around $100 or even, I would say, in 2013 when prices were, were nearing that, that high. So I think that's a big thing that I'm watching. It's a huge political victory for Republicans and um certainly the state of Alaska, but what actual substantive impact it has on the industry, I think it's going to be pretty limited. You know, I, I found one response kind of rich. Uh, Susan Collins from Maine said publicly last week that she did not want to open up Maine waters to offshore drilling, but did in fact support a bill that would open up Anwar, a hotly contested area, to drilling. Um, this goes to the you know, the, 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 the contradictions and hypocrisy in energy, we want nationally some of these big projects, uh, all of the above projects, but when they're in their, our own backyards, generally people oppose them no matter what side of the political spectrum they're on. I think this idea of nimbyism, not in my backyard, is a tried and true practice that you see across the political spectrum. I remember, uh, you know, this the the decades long debate over Cape Wind, what was going to be the first offshore wind farm off of Massachusetts. Uh, Senator then Senator John Kerry at the time wouldn't say whether or not he supported it until. A few weeks after uh, Senator Ted Kennedy died, of course, Kennedy was a staunch opponent of that wind farm because he could he could see it from his house on Cape Cod. So I think that's something, you know, you see that with offshore wind, you see it with drilling. Uh, with drilling, of course, uh, the the concerns are a little bit more tangible. Nobody wants an oil spill uh, washing up on their shore. But the issue again is the same: is this constant battle between being dependent on energy and, and having to produce it somewhere. I guess the, the the last big question I have is around the future of international climate negotiations. Despite Trump's Rose Garden speech saying that we were going to ditch the Paris Agreement, negotiations do continue. And negotiators were at the latest climate talks. The State Department is pretty much business as usual. Rex Tillerson, of course, has said that he believes climate change is a threat. And he has, um, you know, despite having his challenges and, is, and stripping down the State Department, has, uh, you know, implicitly put his backing behind these climate negotiations. So the question is, how long Tillerson, Tillerson stays? And if CIA Director Mike Pompeo who is more of a climate skeptic, comes in to fill his shoes. And then what happens to America's participation in these climate talks? Amy, what's the state of play at the State Department right now? Well, I certainly think if Pompeo takes over, it would have the impact it would have would certainly to be um, negative toward any sort of re-engagement on climate change. Whether or not it actually has a big impact at all, though, I think is an open question. I don't think Tillerson's position on this issue has had a big impact. I think climate change and the State Department's role in it has really been run out of the White House. I was at the Bonn, um, the, the UN climate talks in Bonn, Germany last year, and the primary spokesman for the administration was a White House official, not a State Department official. So I think that tells you something about how things are going. So, you know, I think this year you're going to see a lot of sort of behind the scenes discussions um, at the regular meetings that the UN holds about this issue. The next big public event is not going to be until December in the next round of climate talks in Poland. And these talks are important because unlike this year or excuse me, last year, when it was, wasn't was a key year, the, the conference this year is really important to start laying the foundation for the next stage of the Paris climate deal. And that will really help us see where the administration is on this issue. Trump has said that he wants to re-engage on better terms, but he actually hasn't said anything along those lines. So I think we'll see later this year if those are actually more than just words. And in a couple of weeks, um, the World Economic Forum has their annual meeting in Davos, and a lot of state leaders go. Uh, president Trump has said he is going to go to Davos. This will be the first time a president of the United States has gone in a couple of decades. And I think you'll see a lot of posturing from a lot of state leaders as to what how they're looking at climate. This is a huge issue for the rest of the globe. And we might get some signals from Trump. So I'm, in, I'm really looking forward to it. I will be I will be there and listening. 
Let's wrap up the show. We'll tell our listeners something they may not know. And Amy, as our distinguished guest, you get to share your story first. What do you got? Great. Well, one trend that I've been watching that I think may um, some people may not be noticing is that in part because the Trump administration has fallen relatively far behind in the pack of doing anything on climate change, you're actually seeing the world's biggest oil companies taking the lead. Now, I don't mean that they're out there holding the, the mantle of leadership, but because the administration is falling back, you're seeing oil companies stepping up. Uh, just this week, I had a, a long sit-down interview with the CEO of BP, Bob Dudley, and our conversation covered a lot of ground, um, including climate change. And, you know, when we talked about the Paris climate deal, he said, he's like, well, I'm hoping that the, the U.S. can stay engaged regardless of what Trump is doing. Now, you may not think that would come from an oil company, but I think that's it's important. And I know a lot of people think the oil companies are part of the problem. Um, I agree that they are part of the problem, but I think especially in this new age of the Trump administration not doing anything on climate change, I think they are going to be part of the solution. Yeah, there's a big oil and gas climate initiative that's ongoing with the majors. I, you know, we've seen some of this stuff kind of bubbling under the surface for a couple of years. But now that Trump has retreated so much, you're seeing it more pronounced. Catherine, what's your story? So my story is actually written up very well in Green Tech Media. I'm going to log roll for you, Stephen, which is these unprecedented low prices for solar and wind plus storage um, that came out of the Excel Energy solicitation. So the median price is $36 a megawatt hour, which is amazing. It's 20% lower than the cheapest PV plus battery um, PPA signed to date, which was at $45 a megawatt hour and cheaper than Tucson's electric, well, which was Tucson electric and, and wind and storage is looking at $21 a megawatt hour. So this is pretty significant. I think storage is finally finding its footing um, in concert with other technologies. And this is allowing other technologies to become dispatchable, which makes them even more valuable. So uh, this was significant. I think it's worth everybody taking a read. Yeah, dispatchability, that's going to be the word of the year, I think, if not for everyone, for at least Green Tech Media. We're definitely eyeing how to pair storage with solar and wind and natural gas plants to provide a whole range of services and help make these plants more efficient and uh, competitive and dynamic in this you know crazy changing grid. Uh, I think what those numbers tell us is maybe more about the future cost projections for batteries, because those solicitations in Excel are five years out and they, you know, they assume some pretty dramatic cost reductions in storage and in renewables. So they, you know, they tell us that uh, these projects are kind of far away, but that they're close enough that the, the, the cost reductions modeled are pretty extraordinary. You know, I've been thinking uh, about the last year of journalism and I can't help but feel like we've fallen into a lot of the same traps from before the election. And I, I was thinking about this because I, I, you know, we've had a couple reporters on recently who've been just fantastic and I follow their work very closely. And before I, you know, kind of explain what I'm trying to say, I do find blind critiques of the media always very short-sighted. You know, we, we obviously deal with shortcomings in journalism, mostly due to, to resource constraints, but I do find a lot of critiques of the media or the press way too broad. And of course, under the Trump administration, we're seeing direct, direct attacks on the press. Um, you know, a lot of the journalism that we've seen over the, the last year covering the Trump administration, for example, has been extraordinary. I will say, however, that, you know, I just I'm seeing not a lot of reporting on the economic forces that are changing the fabric of America. And, you know, Amy and Catherine, please tell me if I'm missing something. But, you know, these are the forces that are upending communities and making the political moment that we're in right now in America much more possible. And after the election, we as journalists looked around and collectively asked, what just happened? And for a moment, we we did start talking about the technology and economic forces at work that are utterly transforming this country and, and quite frankly, leaving a lot of communities behind. Um, but I would argue, you know, it'll be the economy will be unrecognizable to vast swaths of the working population within the next five years. And that includes the ongoing surge of renewables, which could be one of the good forces perhaps at work. So 
Uh, I just, you know, want to say that for, for this show and, you know, on GTM, like we, we want to think about what those localized economic forces are doing to our national economy. And, you know, I, I, I just think it's like really important for all of us as journalists to kind of think about that context as we really focus on the insanity of D.C. to understand maybe the economic forces at play that are causing this insanity. Um, Amy, do you have any do you have any thoughts on that as a journalist yourself? Yes, yeah, certainly. I mean, I think the the debates we're having here in Washington are a direct result of those huge changes happening across the country. Uh, you know, the the communities in West Virginia and uh, Ohio and, and Kentucky that are dependent upon coal are now having to adjust the way that they live. And I think, you know, sometimes in Washington, we can kind of forget that. But I do think it's important. And there's often a disconnect. You know, you do have some, you know, coal workers going to work for wind companies and some oil workers um, going to work for solar companies and things like that. And so I think when you get out of Washington and go to these communities, you see that things are a little bit less political and a little bit less black and white than what we're used to here in Washington. Yeah, but I agree, Stephen. It's something I think about a lot, uh, just because where I'm from too is that in this in this move to transition and in the evolution that's really an evolution of disruption, we we just need to be really careful and think about um, who we're leaving behind. Absolutely. Well, with that, uh, we're going to wrap up the show. Thanks everyone for joining us. Thanks for Amy for being here and filling in and just walking us through a really great and enlightening conversation on energy politics. You know, you can help us out with this show coming up. Um, If you give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, that's an extraordinarily good way for people to find us. A lot of you are adding additional ratings and reviews since we've been asking you to do it. And um, if you haven't done it, please, please go ahead and do it. And you can also find us on every other platform. Tune in. You know, that gets you on Amazon Alexa and Google Play. We're on Google Music. We are on SoundCloud, Stitcher, you know, the whole the whole gamut. And you can email us at podcasts at greentechmedia.com as well if you want to hear us talk about something that we haven't been talking about or elaborate on something else. Amy, thanks a lot for your time. Love your reporting. Again, her column is Harder Lime. She is a reporter at Axios. She was formerly at the Wall Street Journal and in the National Journal. Been following your reporting for a long time and just so glad that you could come on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. Catherine, always fun. We'll talk to you soon. Yeah, absolutely. With Amy Harder and Catherine Hamilton, this is The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you next time. 